Hello and welcome to the Equalizer podcast. I'm your host, Ariana Cascone, and I'm here today with Jeff Kasuf to recap the big USL Super League news that dropped last week. And of course, we know there were some big results in NWSL over the weekend, and we'll get to those in the second half of the podcast today. So before we get to that, um, how are we doing today, Jeff? I am okay. As, as anybody can probably hear, I'm a little under the weather, so... um. I swear it is me. It is, this is Jeff speaking, as as I did surprise you when we jumped onto this. So. <laughs> okay, yes. Glad that it is you. Um, and sorry that you're not feeling so well. Hopefully you're on the mend soon. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So in terms of the USL Super League, right, we learned last week that it is applying for Division One sanctioning. Um, and that plan puts the league in direct competition with the NWSL, right? The initial plan was for D2 sanctioning. Um, and they're thinking about targeting smaller media markets that still meet those population requirements. So they've named eight so far, right? In Charlotte, Dallas, Fort Worth, Lexington, Kentucky, um, Phoenix, Spokane, Tampa, Tucson, and D.C., um, and then, you know, they've named a few that are coming soon, but at this point, what can we make of of this sort of really huge news drop? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the the idea that there's a second Division One league coming to to the U.S. Obviously, as you said, that is, you know, that's inherently means it is direct competition with the NWSL, right? And and I think you know it's easy to look in some ways to look at some of the the markets, maybe make some assumptions about budgets. Um, you know, I think maybe make some assumptions across the board and say, well, is this really going to challenge the NWSL? But, um, you know, there's a number of layers to that, that, that we'll get into, but you know, the bottom line is yes, in, in short and, and how that plays out is really going to be the question. But, you know, I, I think the positives for sure, like this is there, there are a lack of professional women's teams in this country, right? I mean, for too long, the, the NWSL did not expand. It's finally sort of hit its expansion boom and, and, you know, is trying to cash in on that. But for many years, there was contraction even. There was a stagnant number of teams. And we, we always had this sort of looming promise of, you know, th- there was always somebody, right? It's always Atlanta or Austin or somebody's coming in next year, right? And, and it never happened. So, um, you know, I think that there is a need for more pro women's teams. You can see that with, you know, opportunities for players, obviously opportunities for coaches and, you know, opportunities for local markets. I mean, that's really the play here for the USL, which is, again, when we look at how might this affect the NWSL, the USL's bread and butter as a business is affecting change or, or rooting itself in these local markets, maybe markets that other leagues other entities have overlooked. So, you know, th- there's a lot here. Um, I think that there, there's a lot to figure out for the USL, for the NWSL as, as a, um, a knock-on effect. But, you know, more opportunities is good. And then I think you get into the question of, you know, why the change from D2 at the start, which was the initial, you know, plan and messaging to to D1 when, you know, there's already a D1 league and, and there's again, a lot of layers to that, but 
you know, U.S. soccer sanctioning system allows for it, for one, and the USL is its own business and has its own prerogative. And, um, you know, I, I think... I think we're in for some some really interesting times, and, and it might take several years to play out. But um, I, w- I won't get too ahead of ourselves because I know we want to talk about you know USL Super League specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it is great that that there will be more opportunities for professional soccer for women in this country. Um, one thing I thought of when you were sort of giving the rundown there is that there will be competition with the NWSL inevitably, and and you know there is a focus on markets that maybe were overlooked when we think about NWSL, but there, I mean, at least in the list that we have now, there is direct competition within markets, right? So both leagues potentially having teams in DC. Um, and it was reported that Audi field could be the home venue for the USL team in the market. Right. So that is like in-house competition in a way. And it kind of makes me wonder about, how how that will pan out i guess yeah uh, i mean look you know washington dc it looks like early days they could be as you said it, from what i've heard that they could be stadium co-tenants and what does that mean for a team in the usl front that has some sort of shared dc united ownership you know sharing it with a team that has broken its ties more formal ties anyway with DC United and is very much a tenant in that stadium. Um, you know, what does Charlotte mean for Raleigh Carey for the North Carolina courage? Um, you know, I think arguably maybe a, a better market or sub market within that state, um, at least on the men's side. Right. And, and won that battle for MLS. So, you know, and then, and then you've got, Dallas, Phoenix, Tampa. I mean, Tampa was obviously reported to be in, in, you know, the finalist, different group, different ownership group, but as a city in the, in the finalists for, uh, you know, this round of NWSL expansion, it's also the site of USL's league headquarters, longtime league headquarters. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense there. Um, and then you have some real variation, right? Like, I mean, respectfully, you know, some of these markets of Lexington, Kentucky, you know, Spokane, Washington, these are not huge you know, top tier markets. Chattanooga has had success. That's, that's one of those sort of floated uh, cities as potential future teams, pending stadium projects, you know, has had some success on the men's side um, and, and shown to be a, you know, a soccer city of sorts. Um, and, and then, you know, you have more potential clash looming with Oakland soul potentially coming into the USL, USL super league, you know, I know the Bay Area is, is a large market. And if you talk to somebody from the Bay Area, one city, you know, feels like a different country from, you know, a city across the Bay. But, you know, Oakland and, and expecting this NWSL Bay Area team to play in San Jose, I think you can still call that very much direct competition. So um, it, it's going to be very interesting. And I think that there are people who are skeptical that a team, you know, a league floating the idea of playing in, Lexington and, you know, Madison, Wisconsin and Chattanooga, Tennessee is going to compete with an established NWSL with teams in LA and Portland and New York. And like, you know, that is generally true, but that is not, that that's missing the bigger point here that we've seen this time and again through the history of pro sports, whether it's American football, basketball, baseball, you name it, that leagues have challengers and if a challenger is successful enough 
it leads to something, right? Typically a merger of some sort, um, you know, could lead to another league folding, whatever that looks like, or, you know, that's really what, I mean, a merger obviously combines the two anyway. So, you know, it's not that, I mean, I think the USL Super League could even end up, I mean, maybe they could have a couple strong markets and it could still pose a threat to the NWSL. And I know that's not the narrative that anybody wants. And, um, you know, it's it's not even about the NWSL having some inherent right to, to be the only D1 league. I think that it's, you know, in many ways has left the door open to be challenged. And, and this was... This really is a move four years in the making. It's a different way of of it coming about, but the USL has been thinking about this for a long time, even under you know, previous leadership or predating the Super League itself. And history of other sports, as I said, and and anybody who's followed soccer knows on the men's side that you know the USL NASL battle became ugly, went to court. The USL ultimately won that, and again. You know, USL is very good at, um, you know, this sort of franchise model and finding good local markets and and being relevant locally. And that's, you know, ultimately all that they need from this setup is is to be relevant locally in in these markets in many ways. So um, I think that this is this is going to be fascinating. And and again, and you know. The NWSL still has these artificial sort of single entity things of a salary cap, a draft, you know, ways to create parity. And the USL has told us that they will not. They will not have a salary cap. They will not have drafts. They plan to play a fall to spring schedule. So what does that mean for an NWSL club that wants those things, right? I mean, I don't think it means anything in 2024, but what does it mean in a few years, if there's some traction from USL and, you know, there's like-minded thoughts among parties that are operating in two different D1 leagues, that that's really the question. And I think that's what, you know, we're not going to know for years. So, you know, people can feel free to tell me I'm being dramatic here for, you know, the next few years, but, but we're headed somewhere uh, along a road of, of some kind of conflict and, and resolution to it. Yeah, I think there's no doubt really about that uh, in terms of, you know, conflict in some way. And I think for me, that means there's going to be change. Um, that feels kind of inevitable, too. When we think about the USL playing fall to spring, right? And then you mentioned that no salary cap and no draft in that league. I wonder what the NWSL will do in light of that news, right? It's Does that make the USL Super League more desirable to play in for some people um does it make the nwsl you know does it make players not want to go to the nwsl um it's sort of i mean more options are good like we keep saying but i think something will have to give inevitably um and you know like you said we won't be able to tell for a while but i don't i don't think it's dramatic really to say like this will be this will have change even if we don't if it doesn't come to fruition you know for five, 10 years, whatever it is. Right. No, it'll absolutely force change. I mean, you know, this is, I don't see the NWSL abandoning a salary cap. You know, obviously the CBA is sort of freshly signed in in many ways or relatively. So, you know, but they will have to adjust and adapt. I mean, what does it mean for player rights? I mean, we finally have some free agency level of it. We have this sort of U18 rule. I mean, again, you know, 
the USL is not perfect, but they have these structures in place that the NWSL simply does not in any organized fashion. Like the USL has a pyramid. It's internal, sure, but they have a an academy system. They have their own amateur set up with the USLW League, and now they have a pro league, which we knew was coming, but we thought it was going to be a D2, and, and it became a D1 league. So, you know, you have the, the system there for, no, you're not going to immediately attract I don't think anyway, immediately attract, you know, world-class players, U.S. national team players. But what I think the, I think you're really almost looking to attract their owners, right? Like who are the, who are the owners that look and say, actually, this is a better model. And, and I think that is going to be the question to monitor for, for several years here, because it's a, it's a very different model. It's obviously a different model by, the schedule they're going to play by the finances, which, you know, is, is both, it's both ends, right? It's the open sort of more open system, let's call it. And it's also um, hard numbers. I, I, I would say it's a fraction of the price to buy into the USL super league than what the NWSL is currently asking. So, you know, they've, the NWSL has created this sort of artificial scarcity, but, created it in sort of this vacuum of which, you know, all of these, what we heard to be 60 some, you know, inquiries and and NDAs that got signed in the expansion process. Well, you know, some of those groups are, are going to turn and say, okay, well, let's see what this USL Super League is about because it's much cheaper. And I, you know, maybe there's more of an opportunity there. Maybe it aligns with my, my vision more, you know, as, as the owner. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't think I've, I've explicitly thought of. And sort of in that vein, I'm thinking about when, you know, early NWSL days, thinking of the, I guess, requirements to be a Division One sanctioned league uh, and having, you know, there needs to be eight teams at launch. These stadiums that the teams play in have to seat 5K. And, and the NWSL received waivers for some of those requirements early on, right? Teams were just not playing on surfaces and, and stadiums that were mm-hmm. really up to par. And so... Do you think that the USL will will have to, I guess, weather a storm similar to what the NWSL was up against in terms of needing waivers for that? Or are these markets set up in such a way where stadiums exist and, and they won't need to have those growing pains that, you know, in the NWSL were resolved pretty recently, all things considered? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, again, sort of, you look at the inherent advantages of this. These are mostly ownership groups that have USL men's sides. So they have infrastructure in place. Now we know from NWSL that just having that doesn't mean much if you can't execute it in the right way. And and we saw where, you know, in Houston and Orlando, they looked at Portland and said, Oh, look, you know, we can do this shared resources and and have this, you know, women's team that's sort of a spinoff of the men's and it'll be successful. And that didn't work. And, and that, you know, taught us in many ways that Portland was unique, right? But in terms of the infrastructure, the stadiums, like, yeah, a lot of these, these are clubs that have stadiums built or are actively building stadiums. And there's more of those coming. If you look around sort of the, the USL um, news landscape that, you know, there are places across the country that are planning to build stadiums and they're not building those just to fill 
a dozen or so dates a year with a men's team. They're they're building them to be a lot of things, you know, multi-purpose venues, but women's teams are part of that. So I think that, yeah, there might be some waivers. Um, you know, the NWSL had plenty of them and um, whatever those look like. I mean, those can be really simple things, right? It's like the the field needs to be wider, you know, whatever it is. Um, maybe maybe simple is, is not the best way to phrase that, but they're not like, major red flags of doing business. They just exist because there's a certain set of pro standards and, and sometimes they aren't met in every single market. So, you know, maybe they'll have some, but I think that you look at the infrastructure in place in most of these places. Yeah. And, and you've got, you know, stadiums are one of the big sort of three bucket list items for any sort of new team, new group, whether whatever league that is, you have to have a place to play. Play. You also have to have a place to train and you need a good market, you need a good ownership group. But, you know, land is not cheap in a lot of these places. So, um, or anywhere really, right? But particularly so in some of these markets. So, yeah, I think that you look at how many of these are teams already operating men's teams that have stadiums, that are building stadiums. And, you know, you can start to see how some of the, the, time gap in terms of being 10 years behind the start of NWSL can be made up a little bit. Yeah, that's sort of exactly where I was thinking in terms of that question. And I guess the last sort of outstanding question I have on some of the things you've hit on is about this schedule. So I know that you've written a lot about, you know, the congestion in, in NWSL schedule and how that matches up with, you know, major tournaments and things of that nature. Um, fall to spring is different. Right. And if you think about some of these markets, like I'm thinking Madison, Wisconsin specifically, playing outdoors in, you know, fall to spring window seems pretty rough. So yeah. what do you think of the motivation for that schedule? Like, I guess I can't really understand why they would pick that window and not not overlap with NWSL, if that makes sense. Well, they picked that window exactly why the NWSL is looking at that as a potential change because mm-hmm. it it aligns with the rest of the world and and I think, you know, this 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 argument has been uh, a fun one as I've reported on this, but like the bottom line is the people who want to see that done is are people who look and say Europe's European season ends June, May, June, those players are ending their season. Speaking very generally, again, I'm I'm repeating general statements that people in executive positions feel that those players do not want to come over half a se- for half a season in the NWSL, which, you know, in a, in a year like this where there's a major tournament running really late, they're really coming here for a couple months maybe. And they're coming here exhausted because they just played a full European season, went to a world cup, had no break, and then are expected to come for the home stretch in the playoffs for an NWSL team. Do those things happen? Yes. But Historically, that's been a real sticking point for attracting some international players. So the theory there, among other things, is you align with the rest of the globe, which is really a European calendar, or, or you know, those are the people setting that agenda. Mm-hmm. And you can be in those transfer windows at the correct time, in theory. So, you know, I, I hear you. I mean, some of these markets, I, I think the initial markets, you know, Yes, we've seen She Believes Cups in February where like Dallas is miserable and icy, right? But, um, you know, for the most part, I think there are enough sort of southern ish markets, 
um, you know, not the South quote unquote, but, you know, just warm enough markets that you could get creative enough with the scheduling and those sort of shoulder months. And again, there's supposed to be a break. This is what the NWSL is talking about too. Like you don't play in late December through February, whatever that looks like. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear by this launch, at least these first eight teams that that was kept in mind by USL. Yeah, this is a good point. And, you know, it's, I, for me, it'll be really interesting to see how the NWSL reacts to that. If they are, they continue to be one of the only leagues that have this schedule that they insist on. Uh, (laughs) That does not align with many other leagues like those in Europe, as you just mentioned. So that's a wrap on all things USL Super League for now, at least. And we'll take a quick break before we jump into NWSL happenings from the weekend. Okay, and we're back to talk about the six games that happened over the weekend, right? We had some really crazy results, and the first third of the NWSL regular season is officially behind us. So just to give a, give a quick rundown here, uh, Angel City and North Carolina battled to a, a 0-0 draw, and Orlando Pride snapped Washington's unbeaten run and came away with a 2-1 victory over the weekend. Racing Louisville beat Kansas City 2-0, San Diego blanked Houston 3-0, and then Portland dominated Chicago 4-0. And in one of the games that surprised me the most this weekend, Gotham beat the OL Reign in Seattle by a 4-1 scoreline, which surprised everyone except for Lynn Williams and Gotham, apparently, according to her <laughs> halftime win, uh, interview, right? So lots to unpack here. Um, Jeff, for you, what's the biggest sort of... I guess, takeaway from the weekend or from the first third generally, whichever you want to go with? Well, yeah, I mean, look, Gotham being top of the table, um, you know, I think I've I've said I was skeptical a little bit of their, you know, strength of schedule to start, but obviously a four to one win in Seattle against the rain is is laying down a marker for sure. It is, you know, a big result. It's it's one that can sort of spur on some further success in a season. So, you know, and and Lynn Williams has been been spectacular for them. I mean, it's, you know, she is the off season acquisition of the year so far uh, across the league. And, you know, she's been, she's been huge for them. I mean, not that, not that it's a, a one player show there, but, you know, I think that they've had some, some early season issues in terms of figuring out who their best 11 is exactly how they want to play. And they were able to sort of tide that over just through, you know, her finding game winners, right? And then, you know, that sort of culminates with getting to this point where they find that, you know, ideal setup. And they've they've been able to, you know, wade through that period of time where they weren't dropping results while they tried to figure themselves out. So, you know, huge result for them, top of the table for the first time in, in 10 years since, you know, inaugural season, the sky blue era. And, um, you know, I, I think it was a disciplined performance. They, they were really smart in how they kind of got narrow in their defensive shape against the rain um, and sort of made play predictable for the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that was the huge result of the weekend among, you know, obviously among quite a few very interesting results and, and, you know, big moments for, for individual players and teams. Yeah. I thought that Gotham looked 
honestly, they were lights out this this weekend. And of course, the scoreline tells us that, but sometimes the scoreline doesn't. Um, so this is one case in which the team that you know came away with a four one win looked great end to end. I think it's interesting that you sort of you mentioned this idea of of um, Lynn Williams game winner sort of holding the team over until they figure it out and. That that's kind of a good way to put it, I think. I mean, you know, there were some question marks in their lineups. We see Jenna Neiswanger finally, you know, being in the midfield again. She was out. She, technically, she scored in back-to-back games she was available for because she was out in week seven. Um, but we see her score just an absolute banger. And, you know, it took, I think, a lot of people, me spe- specifically, I was thinking, like, why is Jenna Neiswanger's talent being used as a fullback, you know, she's so good in the midfield. Let's, let's do that. And, you know, it took until the last couple of games to see that. Um, and of course, you know, Lynn Williams continues to be excellent. Um, but the rain, I think this game does say something about the rain too. So, you know, they're still without Rose Lavelle. And I think they looked at times just really disorganized. Um, they're, they were having a lot of trouble solving Gotham's press. And I, you know, the broadcast was talking about tactical changes that were made at halftime, uh, you know, throughout the game. And, and I just don't know if those really panned out. I mean, they were able to get a goal back, but it, it was never like they were really back in it, at least from my point of view. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously missing Lavelle. Um, you know, I think that they've done well enough with, you know, I think Emily Sonnet's been pretty good in that one of those defensive midfield roles, you know, Quinn's obviously back. Um, look, I mean, you mentioned what stood out from the weekend. I, I mean, I call it a freaky coincidence, whatever. I cannot believe how many scuffed back passes there were across the league this, this weekend that resulted directly in goals. And that was started with the DeMello goal, right? Then 15 minutes later, it's Morgan in Houston. Um, and it, it happened as well in Seattle with, with Lauren Barnes. You know, that was, it's only one nil at that point, right? So that doesn't explain away the whole performance by any means. But, you know, I, I thought that those were, in, in every situation, those were moments that really changed the game. I mean, the first two that I mentioned are, you know, opening goals, right? And, and that last one there with Barnes, um, was, you know, it goes 2-0 Gotham, and I think you start to feel that sort of unraveling bit of pressure from from the rain. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, that there's a lot to figure out there in Lavelle's absence. She's not the only reason that they've, you know, that this result happened. I mean, let's not forget that they won a, you know, they won five, you know, they put up five goals at home, what was it, a month ago? So, um, you know, it's easy to kind of be up and down in this league. And I think we're, we're not used to it so much from the rain, but, um, you know, it's, it's an eye opening result for sure. I think they're missing Lavelle. They've played Balser in, in something of a 10 role. They played her a little wider this time, but, you know, they've got to figure out that midfield for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned that the rain put up five goals a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think we have to mention that that was against Chicago. Right. I think they're a team. I mean, they come out again over the weekend and, and lose. They, you know, for nothing. That's, that's really rough. Um, and it doesn't seem like things are improving over for Chicago. I mean, Portland is a formidable opponent. There's no, you know, no other way to say that. They 
have been looking really good um, <clears throat> in their attack, at least. And, and, you know, they get the clean sheet. We sort of talked about this after week seven, thinking about how this game was sort of going to be a statement for the Thorns after having conceded three goals in back-to-back games. Um, but, you know, as much as that scoreline says Portland's great on the offense, it kind of continues to highlight how much Chicago is struggling. Yeah, I mean, look, most goals conceded, obviously sitting in last place. Uh, things are bad in Chicago, and and obviously there's a lot going on off the field. Um, but you know that this is this is very much a a group that should be better. And and you know, I think there's probably a, a number of things we are not privy to in in whatever's going on there. But you know, certainly there are a lot of individual players who are very good that haven't really met that you know level. Um, but it's it's dire straits for Chicago right now. I'm not sure how it it turns around at this point, really. So, you know, it's a team obviously that needs to get sold off the field, and and on the field, there's there's really, um, you know, they got gutted, right? Two straight off seasons, and and for obvious reasons of things that went on there, players left, players were traded, they wanted to go, they left in free agency, but it's it's all sort of caught up to them on the field now and and i'm not sure how they turn around from you know 22 goals conceded here in eight games yeah that is a grim stat and only 11 goals scored wow so we talked two teams top table you know gotham and portland and and so now touch on chicago and i think we should say something about kansas city who continues to not meet at least my expectations uh, coming into the season. You know, they lose to racing Louisville in back-to-back games. One of them was a challenge cup. So, you know, we've talked at length on this pod about challenge cup and and rotations and and sort of, you know, how we can think about challenge cup games in the context of regular season. But, you know, regardless of how those games are weighted, it doesn't change the fact that Kansas city lost two straight games to racing. In three days, yeah. I mean, they're three straight in all competition, four straight in all competition, sorry. Um, it's, you know, Chicago is the only reason that Chicago being as bad as they are right now is the only reason that Kansas City is, you know, not at the bottom of the table, which is is a lot of defensive issues for sure. There are some injuries they've dealt with, a good number of injuries. But, you know, for I think probably the most hyped off season in the league, this is incredibly disappointing from them so far. Yes, totally agree with that. So are there any final thoughts that you want to touch on before we wrap up for the day? No, I think uh, looking forward to, you know, another another round of games. We turn that one-third mark, and, you know, we'll see. I, I think it's a good time of year to sort of take a snapshot of the table and you know, store it away digitally for October and, and see how different it looks. That's good advice. I will do that. Um, okay. So thanks, Jeff, for joining me. I always enjoy our chats on the pod. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. And of course, thanks to our producer, Jacqueline Purdy for the Equalizer. I'm Ariana Cascone and we'll be back soon with more on the Equalizer podcast. 